Hello and welcome to Accounted for the Iris Interview Podcast. I'm Steve Cox, Head of Market Insights at Iris Software, and I've been around the industry for about 20 years, and my guest today has been around our industry for a lot longer than that, um, but I've known him for a number of years, and we really wanted to delve into the topic today all around that real hot area of knowing your worth and ultimately getting paid for what you really should be getting paid for, because it's very much an emotive topic around pricing, around uh, putting prices up for accountancy firms. A lot of people are scared to do it or haven't done it for several years or even aren't sure what the right area is to go and do this. And my guest today, they, uh, they, they did a webcast for us recently all on this topic and we wanted to, to take a bit of time to explore this in a little bit more detail. So I'm joined today by Martin Bissett, um, friend and colleague within the industry. So uh, Martin, do you want to just, for those who don't know who the wonderful Mr. Bissett is, do you want to just give them a little bit of history about your experience and kind of what you do within the accountancy industry? Oh, we'll give them a little flavour, Steve. Thank you very much indeed for the opportunity. Yeah. So, Martin Bissett, um, a 25-year veteran, unfortunately, of, of the accounting profession, but not an accountant, critically. And that's become important as the years have gone on because uh, I've had to fight to get my place to be heard. So, um, known principally as an author, as a consultant, and as a speaker in accounting conferences, and more recently uh, become uh, a, a micro-investor and non-executive director of several companies that serve the accounting profession and the fintech industry. So what I'm able to bring to today's conversation is a, a view from the practitioner's office on pricing, a view from the client's perspective, how it is to receive proposals and pricing structures and, uh, and price rises from accounting firms, and indeed also comment on the pressure that the accounting pressure feels on a macro level from a fintech industry that sometimes steps on its turf. Yep. Now, the area that we're going to talk about today is probably worthwhile us uh, starting off to identify the, the, the cause as to what's the issue here. And we both talk to accountancy firms all the time. Um, and one of the things I often hear from firms is, well, we thought about doing price rises and we thought about changing our pricing structure, but we were really worried about losing clients because of that. So we've just decided not to and, and take a, a, a hit on the chin almost on our margins. Is that something that you're hearing with some of the firms that you're uh, working with? It's only been the case since the early 1300s, to be honest. <laughs> um, the, the, we're, we're, this is not a new scenario. But let's, let's, let's have a little bit of fun with the, with the reasons of the cause behind this. Let's go to 18, the 1800s. Um, and the French uh, economist Jean Baptiste Day, who defined an entrepreneur all those years ago, Peter Drucker still believes this is the the seminal definition of an entrepreneur because we've 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 taken that word and it now means anybody who's got a few businesses is an yeah. entrepreneur, the mompreneur, the accountpreneur. But the definition was that an entrepreneur was a person who took an economic resource from an area of low productivity to high productivity yeah. and yield, okay? And that was his original definition. Now, that takes generally the type of character that is outgoing, that is uh, proactive, that uh, forward thinks. That is a fairly poor fit with the, with the traditional definition of an accountant who 
earns their money at a very basic compliance level to record the past. Yeah. And to be paid because they ha- because a business has to be compliant by law, therefore an accountant is needed, not necessarily wanted. And therefore it is a grudge purchase in many cases for business owners. Yeah. And therefore it's oh well, I, I am I, 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 we will charge this for this and and this is where the whole mindset began. You know, of the I'm a necessary evil. I'm sorry to have to charge you money, but it's required by law. And when an entire profession starts with an apology, you know, then then moving that, for which is a low economic yield, um, to something that is much brighter, much more attractive to a business owner, that's a tough, tough climb. So this generation of accounting practices and accounting practice owners. Steve, are certainly not the first, they may not even be the eighth generation, to, to, to feel pricing pressure, pricing sensitivity, pricing uncertainty, and to be free of pricing policy within their firms. And it, you touched on a really important point there, is that maybe the old stigmatism was that the accountant was the necessary evil, you've got to go and file your taxes, you know that you want to kind of get the most efficient tax and minimise what you need to go and uh, provide to pay the right tax, not the the wrong tax, because obviously the penalty's for it. And obviously in life there's only two things certain in life, right? Which is uh, tax and death, and accountants deal with the tax bit to avoid the death bit. So (laughs) therefore the necessary evil kind of kicks in. But... Do we see that starting to change as almost like a persona of the accountant? I mean, long, long since it's been referred to as the bean counting industry, it's mm. become much more than that. Mm. But in some regards, they're still pricing as if they're a bean counter. Do we think yes. that there's a, a change that's been happening? That there's, there's a perennial cycle of a momentum build, then a momentum stop, and then a momentum restart. So we're, we're probably, in, in modern times, we probably take it back to the early 90s, 1990s now, where a lot of American-Australian methodology came into the British market. And the, the core message was, there's no future for your practice in compliance work. The future is the A word, advisory. <laughs> you know, and, in, and in this, all the things that we're used to now as norms, the grading of the clients, um, the pricing options, the menu pricing, all yeah. of these things were all birthed into popular, uh, the popular zeitgeist at that time. Yeah. And then once accountants of that generation struggled to implement that and to have the, to use a beautiful Jewish term, the chutzpah, to, to carry that out, then they tailed off. And then the next generation of accountants say, why are we think, doing things this way? Why are we only making this much money? Why are we, why are we, why are we? And asking all the same questions, going looking for all the same answers, and the momentum starts again. Yeah. So I think in 2022, we're now in a, a place where we've got something brand new in accounting. You can't say that very often. <laughs> but we now have a far more diverse representation in accountancy. You know, the market has now changed. Not is changing, but has changed, past tense. And we now have different minds. Adults who grew up as children with technology as standard, where they were used to using technology, where they've been used to having the internet and social media and seeing influences from all around the world and it not requiring some conference in some place somewhere for them to be shown the new way of life. Yeah. So there's far more fertile, far more open, far more proactive, far more energetic minds 
coming into accountancy ownership at this stage, Steve, and I think it's now that those are the that's the probably the core driver behind why now pricing is back on the rise again as a subject. And you, you touch on a really interesting area there around the kind of the the technology and almost your mindset towards it, and that may kind of starts to to think: is it a case of technology isn't just being seen now as a cost, and therefore that's a part of the price? Whereas actually they're starting to see it much more as a, this is what the technology can do for me, here's the benefit, almost is the ROI I'm getting on it. And therefore, yeah. maybe a piece of technology that costs me a lot, that actually saves me a huge amount of time, means I could bring my price down, but my margin is growing. So that change in mindset is definitely something that I'm starting to see within across the, the, the whole of the accounts uh, scene. It's not just those one-man bands or, or people who are very nimble and agile who are picking up the latest technology it's all the way up to some of the largest firms who are all starting to think differently and i think you're right it's a, there's a change happening right now around the internal parts of an accountancy firm as to who not just the decision makers are but who's got an input into the future of this and the pricing structure for it and i mean both, both you and me were uh, accountants earlier this year and mm. um, one of the things that we chatted about afterwards was the fact that it felt like there was a different type of audience there from we haven't been able to be face to face with people and yes it did feel like a, a slightly younger generation that were there but also the types of questions they were asking they were challenging yeah. this status yeah. quo and do you think yeah. that's a big driver for challenging the status quo within pricing as well oh definitely yes yeah i can only offer anecdotal rather than statistical evidence here but as a speaker at accountex i saw it i looked out into the audience and i saw different faces bear in mind that i've had the honor of speaking at all but one of the accountexes so i've been used to the faces that have been looking back at mm. me and it has changed and it has changed for the better so i'd say it's improved because it is a younger demographic it is the eyes are brighter <laughs> there's more intellectual curiosity compared to the you can't tell me anything new i've been doing this for 55 years you know you know the traditional what we might call the are we allowed to say pale male and stale you know the traditional uh, model and yep. we're seeing people go explain to me why i should do things this way it's yeah. not challenging in a negative critical way it's challenging in a wanting to understand way say give me your best show me how to price why should i do it this way why shouldn't i do it the way the other person says and it's causing people in my position to have to justify ourselves and it's fantastic <laughs> because now we have to wake up and we aren't now spewing the same old content out to the same old audience we're now on our toes to say right challenge accepted let's go so yes i think very much from a senior manager level upwards we are now in a position where individuals are saying why why are we doing it this way why have we always done it this way why must we always do it this way and increasingly, as those people progress into partnership or directorship, depending on their model, then they get to choose how things are done. And they've got different ideas from the previous generation, and it couldn't come soon enough for my liking. And that kind of feels like one of the first key takeaways from the discussion we're having is that if you want to know your worth, the first thing you've got to do is challenge that status quo, right? Mm -hmm. Then without doing that, then it'll almost be a finger in the air as to what we think we should be doing, because they'll just people will fall into their natural habits of let's just do what we always did and maybe put a little bit of percentage uplift on it. And I know some firms, that's the right approach for them, that every year when they do their clients piece, they'll look at it and go, how much work did I spend on it? How much effort? How much time? Actually, what did I build them last year? Now I'm just going to go and increase that by 2%. And yeah. we, we do see that. But yes. what 
it feels like we're on the, the the opposite side of where we would have been maybe like five ten years ago where it's the the the, the age-old debate of kind of like billing versus time right yeah. it was predominantly a time-based industry and it doesn't feel like that anymore certainly from my perspective most of the firms that i speak to still do timesheets because yes. they want to understand efficiencies. Yes. But while some are still billing on it, a growing proportion, and I'd say this is well over 50% now, are now saying, I'm never going to do a time billing to a client unless it's like a specific project that requires it. Yeah. Otherwise, my general services now are going to be more down the potentially fixed fee route or even a value-based route for what yes. is the value I'm bringing to a, a, a client. So. Is there, in this change that we're seeing on the approach to pricing, is there a silver bullet? I mean, we, we both saw a lot of people at Accountess proclaiming to have the answer for pricing, but what's your view? Oh, there's so much to unpack here, Steve. Um, if I may delve into about four different specifics here. Sure. So let's start at the end. Now, is there a bullet? Well, if I let you know that the next book that comes out from me is called Never Buying the Bullets, um, <laughs> then you'll get the, the general idea here. There, is, yeah. there isn't a bullet. If there was a bullet that was proven to work the majority of times for the majority of firms, then I wouldn't be having the privilege of talking to you right now because I'd be retired in Barbados. So there is no, let's, let's get the bullet out of the way. Then let's quickly take a look at fixed versus value. Value pricing is a minimum of a 40-year-old concept within uh, accounting, and it's a bridge too far still for many technical professionals who are unable to get wrap their head around perception building. Yeah. And value pricing works when you can build a perception of the value of a thing, of a provision. Yeah. So until you can do that, value pricing's out. So the, the sort of the um, little brother or sister of value pricing is fixed pricing. And I think technical professionals such as accountants get their heads around fixed pricing far easier. One number for everything, or you can eat buffet with yeah. and, and if it's this, 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 or this, or this, it stands outside of this agreement. And I think people can get their head around that faster and menu options faster. So I think that's why we've seen adoption of fixed pricing right the way across sizes of firms in the United Kingdom. It's also prevalent in the United, in the United States, I can report as well. That's been easy for people to get their heads around. Coming back then to a, a know your worth scenario, for me, I, just a couple of weeks ago at the time of recording this, a couple of weeks prior to recording this, I had the privilege of being on stage in Athens and I'm surrounded by sizable accounting firms, very chunky accounting firms, mm -hmm. multi-million pound accounting firms. And I'm asking them to come forward, just to me, they don't have to tell the world, just me, with their stories of how they've helped their clients. And of course, no one wants to be the first. Nobody at all. <laughs> so I make the classic speaker, presenter, trainers, coaches mistake of asking a general question where no one has to answer if they don't want to. So then I correct that by asking a specific question. And I go, right, you, pointing to somebody in the audience and say, tell me a story of one of the greatest times you ever helped out a client, one of the most uh, profound impacts you ever made in a client's life and then I'm asking one person to speak to one example and all of a sudden they can give me it and they spend their time telling me the story and then they say oh actually there's another one and there's another one and then all of a sudden the room starts to light up in various pockets around yeah, the audience the and everybody starts going and, and me sir yeah. and, and me sir and all of a sudden everyone can tell me a story of how they were absolutely pivotal in the success of their client. Now, can I find that on their website? No. Can I find that in their LinkedIn profile? No. 
Can I find the letters after their name? Yes. Do I care about letters after their name? No. Does that influence me what price I pay you? No. Does a story influence what price I pay you? Yes. So for me, if anybody listening to this wants to know their worth, there is a very, very shortcut, uh, almost a bullet, that they can employ straight away. And rather than fumbling around saying, well, I don't like to say, well, it's, it's really just what I'm paid for, and all that apologetic nonsense that we see from the profession because of the type of person it attracts. Go into the facts. We like facts. So let's go into the stories, go into the past, go into the treasure trove of, of, of the practice. And let's find what you actually did. Not a claim, not a promise, not some sort of guarantee, yeah. nothing like that. Nothing that, is, nothing that is vague and open to interpretation, but third party, indisputable, irrefutable social proof of where you helped the business from point A to point B and they couldn't have made it without you. And then how many of those have you got? And as you start to explore all of these evidences of how you improve people's lives, you start to understand your worth a bit more to people like us as business owners. And it's quite interesting, isn't it? Because I've been doing a lot of research around the, the top 500 accountants recently, and then kind of uh, further on from there, uh, around the social profiles and websites and LinkedIn. And one of the things that really surprised me is the one the, the lack of detail or the lack of anything in LinkedIn for a lot of these larger firms. And yeah. where they have got a presence, it's very much a inside-out piece. They're talking mm. about themselves. This is what we do. These are the services we provide. Not that outside-in approach. This is what our clients say about us. And this yes. is why they stay with us. And yeah. even on their websites, yes, there are some client testimonials, but... I don't think I've found one so far that says I work with ABC accountants because they helped me grow my business from 1 million to 5 million or yeah. actually the, my accountant has been irrefutable in the driving my business to its success for XYZ. To your point, those evidence-based pieces are what other clients, prospective clients and overall prospects will look for rather than... I want to know how good an accountant you are based upon your point, letters after your name or the qualifications yeah. and things like that or, or the pricing structure. And um, it, I think, this, from my own personal opinion, the use of digital technology and kind of the social uh, the side of things with digital social media seems to be breaking down some of those apologetic barriers because on a website, you can't apologize to someone for a price you're paying. And LinkedIn, the same, you can't do that. And we're ingrained as humans to kind of be slightly apologetic, and certainly in the UK, British is always the, 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 the first oh, yes. to apologize, right? So going to a pricing structure and putting things onto your website means you can't do that. Mm -hmm. So do we think this shift towards digital is starting to change maybe some of the behavioral habits in this as well? I'm not sure if it's the shift towards digital or rather the generation that's making the shift. Maybe, yeah. You know, so, you know, there used to be, we're only 10 years, in fact, we're only eight years removed, Steve, from talks at accounting conferences that were called, yes, you do need marketing. <laughs> I think you I know, might have seen some of them. Which I think was, uh, shout out to Damien Great, I think that was his. Um, and, and here's what to put on your website. And, an accounting firm at partner level had to be convinced to have a website yeah. because it was not ingrained upon them to do that. It was that, you know, that's not what they did. Referral-based business model. It grows by itself. Why do we need to tell anybody about anything? And I think we've got a generational shift who now can't understand the reverse of that. How on earth could we not have 
a broadcast platform? Yeah. How on earth could we not have a plethora of messages? How on earth could we not have a connection with our audience? And it's gone yeah. completely the other side now to a generation in positions of uh, responsibility and leadership who don't who couldn't understand the other side. And so I think there's, there's plenty of uh, firms where you'll find client testimonials. So I want to make a distinction between a testimonial and a story here. Yeah. Because there's many people who've got testimonials which are pro forma, boilerplate. Uh, I have worked with so-and-so for 24 years and they've never made a mistake and I wouldn't hesitate to recommend them and that sort of thing. And you get that and, and the client looking in on that isn't impressed, isn't swayed by something like that because a testimonial is absolutely average. Everybody's got them. You know, everybody's got somebody who likes them. Even brutal dictators had girlfriends. <laughs> you know, somebody likes them at some point. So it doesn't really differentiate and it certainly doesn't improve upon your current situation as a business owner. So if you're a business owner, you don't want to read a testimonial because you're not expecting a testimonial that says, I've worked with this firm for 24 years and it's the worst decision I ever made. You know, you're not going to read that. You know you're going to read a positive thing. So it doesn't really tell you anything. The, the great and long-retired David Meister said, don't talk to me about your services and don't talk to me about your qualifications because I assume competence. Yes. I wouldn't be reaching out to you if I thought you were incompetent. So don't try and tell me that you've got lots of letters after your name to establish competence. I've already assumed competence. I don't want to learn about that. I want to learn about people like me who've been helped by people like you. And so there is a so there's plenty of testimonials, and I don't see a lot of stories. And there's there is one site, Steve, in a, a firm in South Wales, which I adore. And when you land on their site, all you are greeted with is the faces of people. Okay, not people within the firm, but yep. clients. All clients who have consented to be upon that website, and you learn about Gary, and you learn about Cheryl, and you learn about Ray, and you, and so you see these faces, and you click on. The, the, you know their picture and there is their story and it's, it focuses on how the practice has intervened in the business and has yep. taken it from its starting position to its ultimate professional or personal aspirations in a certain time scale so here's the intervention here's the improvement and that's our value and it states that six or eight different times in the stories and it takes you about three pages to get to services mm. You know, we only start talking accountancy about three pages in. The very first message from that practice to the, to the world is, we improve business owners' lives. Yeah. And I would love to see the profession adopt that kind of thinking far more widely than it currently does. And that kind of feels that that, that firm definitely has got a real handle on what their why is rather than yes. what their what is. Yes. And I think that, that's the, the intricate balance there, isn't it? That most firms know what they do, but they don't know why they do it. And if yes. you can find their why, their purpose, and be able to demonstrate that from an outside in point, price actually doesn't become a conversation at all, really. Actually, it becomes a... I want what they've got, what Jack or what Jill on your website yes, got. I want yes. that. How do I do that? And it becomes a conversation piece rather than a, hmm, am I going to get the right, the right value out of what I'm going to be paying for this? Because actually I've already seen the proof points, so I know the value's there. Yes. But a lot of firms um, will struggle with trying to do this with the existing clients. It's all good for, for kind of prospective ones for how to get net new business in through the door at the right price. But a lot of firms and our, our listeners probably are now, as I say this, thinking about that particular client that 
they've had four years mm. that they've worked with for a long time and maybe they were once upon a time on the right price for what they were doing but as everything with scope creep with the changing requirements of what people need have they reflected that in the pricing structure for what they're doing for them mm. so um what how do they go about this because will an existing client go see the website and see the value from others like them how do they engage that conversation a, a gradual perception change so two examples here i had the opportunity to speak to a gentleman called Manuel, who despite his name is a German accountant. Right. Um, and, uh, and he was saying, Martin, you don't understand. That's the most common phrase I hear in my life, Martin, you don't understand. And he said, Martin, you don't understand. You know, m my boss is the child of the post-war generation, yep. where everything they had was blown to smithereens and they ended up with nothing. We have a scarcity mentality, Martin, you don't understand. We're not looking to add value. We're looking to just hang on for dear life and what we've already got. <laughs> yeah. You know, this is, this is territorial for us. And he was explaining to me why German firms don't embrace an added value mindset or an advisory mindset because it's not, it, that's not their primary interest. Their primary interest is survival first. Uh, so that's that. In a, a top 30 firm here in the UK, you know, again, we're only a couple of years removed from when we had a tax partner in a particular firm in a particular office. And that tax partner used to outsource the pricing of a job to the tax manager to do, okay? So the, the tax partner would go to the meeting with the client or potential client, would take the brief, would come back, would shape the brief, and then would give it to the tax manager to say, price that for me. Yep. And they're going, the tax manager knew to increase the price by 25%, whatever number they thought of, to increase it by 25% because they knew the tax partner was collapsing by that much in negotiation yeah. when they went back in. Wow. So it was already inflated by 25 knowing that they were going to give away 25 <laughs> in the actual client meeting. So when we've got an existing client, it's a gradual perception change. And I can explain this in a number of different ways. But first of all, you will see a speaker. Um, it's very common for a speaker to bang on the pulpit and say, sack your bottom 20% or sack your bottom 5% yeah. of that, that sort of thing. Fire your clients. And I think that's poor advice. Uh, selling them is something else entirely. Definitely. So I think there has to be a mindset shift now from revenue, top line, to profitability. Okay, And if we are trying to try and shift a client to a new way of thinking, to working with the firm in a new way, to invariably spending more with the firm as a result of that, how likely is it that they're coming with us in the first place? How likely is it that we're gonna spend the time to get that result or are we wasting our time? And where we're wasting our time, a decision has to be made. And for me, what I love to see firms doing is implementing pricing policy and profitability policy, where they say we calculate the gross and net profitability in our own way, however you choose to do that, and any client that is in this bottom quartile or whatever it happens to be, bottom 10%, whatever, that's someone that we don't even try and improve yeah. at all, okay? That's someone that we look to sell for one times fees to somebody else and we'll saddle them down with the crap. And we will then, will free up capacity to work on where we've got potential. And then where we've got potential, typically known as grade A's, grade B's, grade C type mm -hmm. clients, then the start is very, very simple, but firms struggle to do it. And it is quite simple. You sit down with the team, 
you take a look at the business, and we're talking about any given client here, an existing client who we think might be resistant to price increase, and we say, right, if we were then, at their stage of business, knowing what we know about them, knowing what they're trying to achieve, what would they, if we were them, what would they welcome a conversation about right now? You know, is it irrelevant to talk pensions right now because they're barely scraping by? Yeah. You know, is it relevant to talk cash flow forecasting at this point in time? Is it relevant to talk venture capital? Is that what they want to hear about? Do they need efficiencies? What is it? Do they need some sort of greater process? What, if we were them, what would we want this firm to talk to us about right now? And decide what we think the client would be receptive to. And then, the tough part, Steve, pick up the flipping phone, <laughs> say hi, follow that one up with how are you doing, and then shut up and listen to what they say. Yeah. Until they finish talking, and then we say, got an idea for you. I've been sat down with the team thinking about your business. Now, first of all, that's the very first time that that business will ever have received a call from an accountant saying, I've been sat down thinking about your business. <laughs> so that's new. Yeah. And they say, and we, we take a look at where you are, we've benchmarked it against some of the raw clients who have been in similar, not same positions, and I've got one or two angles that I wouldn't mind having a conversation with you about. When have you got half an hour? And that's it. That's the whole thing. It might be a conversation about the need for cash flow forecasting. It might be a conversation about the need for, I don't know, outsourcing the payroll. It could be anything at all. But we're just going to approach it very gently, very professionally, very conversationally and informally, and say, talk to me about what you're trying to do, and let me see what from my arsenal over here I have that's a fit to get you to where you're going. That's it. And when we do that, the client is no longer thinking they've taken that much time and they're charging me this much for it and that's not that's not valuable. Yeah. They're now thinking, okay, you're now working for me. Yeah. That's that's a mindset shift and that's all it takes. A conversation with the team and one conversation with the client and we're in play. So it kind of feels like a, uh, another kind of key takeaway is that one, they shouldn't be scared to have those conversations with clients. It's quite an open-ended conversation, right? It's very easy to have that, as simple as kind of talking to a, any of your friends. But also they, they should stop avoiding these kind of pricing conversations as well because it's not just around the pricing bit, it's around the demonstrating the value that we've got ideas to help you with and that starts to lead to opening a, a lot more doors. But I think one of the things, obviously, we're in a bit of a unique situation from where post-COVID now, we've mm. seen a big change in the sorts of things that were being asked by uh, clients of their accountants. And I think some of the recent research shows that one in three accountants have been finding that clients are expecting this proactive advisory piece because mm. they've been asking constant questions throughout the pandemic of how, how do I survive? How do I do this? How do I do that? Not how do I pay less tax? Mm -hmm. They've been asking for all of this. And during that period, majority of firms haven't been charging for it. Mm -hmm. So suddenly, the client expectation is, oh, for the money I've been paying for all these years, mm -hmm. I can now pick up the phone and ask them all these other questions. And I want that to now become the norm, and I want them to proactively come back to me. So if that's starting to happen on top of the stuff they're already paying for, the, the, the compliance work and everything else, without paying extra, Mm -hmm. How does a firm start to have that conversation? Because that becomes slightly different, isn't it? The expectation is already wrong. How do you mm -hmm. reset that expectation yeah. with the client? Yeah, how do you create the expectation? Absolutely. So let's be clear about blame, first of all. Let's, have, let's play the blame game for a second. This is, <laughs> this is the accountant's fault. 
okay? Yeah. Unquestionably, this is the accountant's fault. The choice to work for free in the pandemic, but I might lose the client, but it's the right thing to do ethically. Fine, 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 fine. But the expectation wasn't set by the client, it was set by the accountant. Yes. So it's the accountant that is rectifying their own error here. So let's be clear about that first of all. Now, having done that, the next step now to rectify that is effective language, the employment mm -hmm. of effective language. So it would go something along these lines. Steve, uh, during that whole COVID period, you know, it was a bit dicey there for a second, you know, and I am delighted to see how your business has now flourished, not just survived, but flourished as a result. We took a decision as a practice not to charge you for, let's say, going above and beyond where we would normally go for you in that period. We felt that as professionals, um, with a Royal Charter, for example, it's, 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 it was incumbent upon us to act in our clients' best interests. But yep. what we don't want you to do, Steve, we don't want you to get the idea that that's a norm, okay? And also, I hope you'll be pleased to know, we've also taken a practice decision not to charge you for that retrospectively either. <laughs> Okay, you've had that for free, and without going a bit too Jim Bowen, that's in the bank, it's safe. So, you know, so that's done now, okay? So, the, so what I want to do, Steve, now, is I want us to now hit the reset button and say, what would you like us to do? And this, that, 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 piece of, that piece of language is critical, to putting it very much in the hands of the client. Yeah. What would you like us to do? Would you like us to go back to how we were pre-pandemic with you? Would you like us to maintain the level of support that we've shown you during the pandemic, which is absolutely great, we'd be delighted to do so, but we need a conversation on that one, financially. Um, or would you like a third alternative? Tell me, Steve, what would you like? And at that point, we are letting the client dictate to us what, it, what they want, when they want it, how they want it. So it's no longer about what we are imposing upon the client, we're rather taking instruction from what the client wants from us. We're making them choose to go back to a lesser service yeah. or choose to pay for an enhanced service. And that's what we've got to do. And if you have a client who then pushes back on that and says, oh, I just thought it was all standard. I understand you may have thought that, Steve. You thought wrong. <laughs> so, you know, because we've got to be clear about it. And the, the, the accountant has to have the assurance and the resolve, and to be quite frank, the self-respect yeah. to have that conversation. The accountant is presumably a partner. The partner is presumably an equity holder in the practice. Therefore, their primary responsibility is to act in the best interest of the shareholders, i.e. themselves. And for that reason, they need to protect the profitability of the practice. And therefore, they can't be giving things away for free. And from the structure of the conversation you were just suggesting there that firms and individuals could go and have with their clients, there's a certain level of empathy there as well as evidence. And with those two together, to your point, putting the, the path forwards into the hands of the client, most people don't want to go for less, just psychologically. They'll always, if you give them three options, they'll always go with the middle option. They'll never go backwards generally. Yes. So therefore, you know that they're, they're not going to go down that route. It's just, I think there's a fear of the unknown in some regards. Maybe it's the fear of letting go of the control of that conversation, but it's an illusion of control, isn't it? Because actually at that point, you've, you've already set the kind of the, the, the aspirations of what you kind of want to have this conversation for. And it's almost like they're working through it. It's a good sales technique as well. <laughs> it, it is, but you've got you've got Kim with a cracking phrase there, the illusion of control. Yes, it is the illusion of control. And it's also based upon a myth that can never be borne out by any statistics. There is a myth that if we do these sorts of things and if we act in this sort of way and behave this sort of way with the client, they will leave for yeah. the other accountants. 
who'd be cheaper, you know, and that sort of thing. And then whenever somebody raises that with me, I say, great, please go into the practice now and give me the statistical evidence of all the clients who have left you when you put a price up. And of course they can't produce it because it doesn't happen because as clients, we don't change our accountants like we change our socks. Yeah. Accountants have financial intimacy with us. They know everything. They know where the bodies are buried. And as a result of that, we are in no hurry to start that relationship all over again. That's why it's so difficult for accountants to win work that isn't referred, because they've got to break a loyalty barrier to the existing accountant first. That's yes. emotional, not logical. So there's an emotional tie to your firm. So you're gonna to have to do far more damage than a simple conversation about service levels to upset them and make them leave. And it's a fascinating area, isn't it, around the how you can go and do these conversations. And some, uh, we talk about the generational bit, some people would rather do that as an email rather than doing a telephone call. But in, in my experience, doing it as a call, you get a lot more out of it because of obviously you can hear the, the tone of people's voice, the sincerity. Sometimes that yes. can be incredibly difficult to get across on an email. Plus, yes. accountants talk about the, how they own the relationship, how they drive, and they're really proud of that. Doing that through an email, it, it loses that personal touch for a lot of it. So it does, may, yes. maybe the, pers- the the email is to, I'd like to have a conversation with you. I've tried you on the phone, but let's get in touch. You still follow that up with that phone call for them and I think when it comes to pricing like that it's something you can't just leave to kind of happen on its own to your point you need to put it into the client's hands so that they can give you the answer but if you've structured it in the right way they'll actually come to the right answer in the right way yeah I I agree with that and there's two reasons why it doesn't happen as well so given that it's so simple given that we've outlined the steps we've even given our listeners the language to use yeah Will we suddenly see a deluge of these phone calls being made? No. Here's why. Because number one, an accountant unfortunately sees themselves as subservient to the client and sees themselves as, please sir, I have, I have filed your taxes, can I now be paid? And, and not as a peer. Yeah. You know, and it's a peer level relationship. It's, a, it's somebody with some problems, the client, and somebody with some solutions, the accountant, working together for the betterment of both, mutual yes. improvement. So it's a peer-level relationship, and they don't, and, and firms do not realise that, and, and will not accept themselves in that role. That's the first thing. And the second thing is the event-driven nature of the profession, and the event-driven nature of a partner's day. So they'll pluck the courage up and set the time aside to make this phone call to Steve uh, on this basis, and then a, uh, somebody pops their head through the door and says, "Oh, uh, Martin, uh, so and so, Roger's just called. Uh, the machine's not working, and they can't make payroll." Uh, for the whole staff this month, can, can you can you come quickly? Yeah. And the event-driven nature means that oh yeah okay I'll go and do that. And the phone call to Steve now goes to priority Z yes. on the list. And time passes, confidence ebbs away, and then they have to remind themselves as to why they're going to do it in the first place. And unfortunately, that's the operational reality within many accounting firms whose partners are still in, are still involved in carrying out the work of the portfolio. And maybe one of the things we can give us some advice and some tidbits for the, the listeners is around how could they go and trial this to try and make it a success, which is maybe go look at some of those kind of like low, low profit, high demand clients, ring fence them, almost kind of like cohort them off to say, right, here's my bucket of 10, five of each that I'm going to go and do this phone call with. And I'm going to commit to going and do that, hold themselves accountable to just those five of their 500 odd clients. Test it with those first. Take that first step because 
once you've done a couple of those phone calls, confidence grows. The the apologetic nature soon disappears because we're yeah. used to the new language, That's and suddenly that ten will be done very very quickly and hopefully with a very positive outcome. So then the next ten, and then maybe the next fifty, and continue forwards. Maybe taking it almost like as a bite-sized approach could be the first step to them driving this across the wider client base for them. Yes, absolutely. And I've seen it done. We're not talking theory here. Mm. We're talking evidence-based um, methodology. Whenever you buy a cleaner for your carpet or for your sofa or whatever, it says, you know, to, te to test the colour fastness, yeah. test, test, test on, a, on, a, on a non-exposed area first, in the corner or something, make sure the colours don't run. And so you, you mitigate risk as an accounting firm by trying it out on one or two clients that you wouldn't be sorry to see go in reality, you know, that are a little bit of a pain in the backside, and say, right, well, if this goes horrendously wrong, we've actually lost a couple of clients we were dying to lose. Yeah. And freed up a bit of capacity. So it's actually a win-win, this one. We can't lose from this. And as you absolutely point out from there, the confidence grows with the small wins to the point where there is saying, okay, okay, all of a sudden, I've got confidence in this accountants club podcasty thingy who said where those people said that I should do this because it's just worked. I've just tried it and it's just worked. So I can give an exact example, if it would be of interest, Steve, as yeah, to where this actually played out. So a firm in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, of all places, um, had this issue with the lower end. So not so much about how to extend grade A and B uh, engagements, yeah. but very much on the low end and how do we get rid of the ones that we are struggling with. And they took a sample of six of their absolute worst of the worst clients and the partners took responsibility three partners took responsibility for two each making those phone calls and they basically their phone calls to their to their clients were hire so and so i need a quick conversation with you we've been reviewing the type of relationship we have with you and here is the key phrase steve and we cannot continue as we are mm. however and there was the hope the hope was injected in the however however We've had a think about this and we have three options for you today that we'd like you to advise us as the one that's the best fit for you. And these three partners with these two opportunities each, they gave these clients, the, the grade D clients, the three options of accept a 10% price increase effective immediately, not just this year, but every year until the grade D client reached the practice average. Yep. That was option one. Option two, do not have any price increase whatsoever, but be educated by the firm in what constitutes a grade A client for the firm and be contractually obliged to deliver three referrals to grade A style clients for the firm every year. Yep. Okay, so mandatory referrals. Or ignore both of those. Don't have a price increase, don't do anything with referrals, and they, this, this firm would pass you on, wrap you up, and pass you on to a practice more able to service your needs. So basically, do you want your price to go up? Do you want to give us referrals, or do you want to leave? Yeah. And in those first six examples, say, which is as far, as far as I know the story, I don't know the story beyond this point, the first six all chose the exact same option, which was the referrals. Interesting. They didn't want to pay the price, and they didn't yeah. want to leave. The path of least resistance for those clients was to say, okay, I will commit to providing you with, when you tell me what a grade A client is, to finding yeah. you the people I know 
who are grade A style for you. And I understand contractually that if I don't complete three in a year, that's not three signed up, but three presented to the firm. If I don't bring you three, then I am levied a 10% increase as standard. And for me, that's a fascinating story. And thank you for sharing it, because what we've just seen there is that there's always another option. It doesn't have to be a price increase or not actually thinking about profitability about how do we grow those really good clients where we know that we can make the money on could be a way to supplement those that we don't and if they're the ones doing the lead generation for you then actually you've got your sales and marketing covered off by your grade d clients yes who can help you with your grade a so it's quite a a fascinating piece and one of the 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 other areas i just wanted to to explore with you is something that you touched on in the the previous kind of webinar that you did with us which was all around this holy trinity of pricing around (laughs) the 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 three elements that that kind of made it to what i suppose a lot of uh firms probably don't even think about that probably should be considering when they're having these conversations around is 10 percent the right amount to increase it or Mm -hmm. what's the new pricing structure look like so do you want to just explain to our listeners around the, the, what those three are and why they're so important? Yeah, so, so this Holy Trinity came about when I, when I saw the simple being made complex. You know, for, for many speakers, gurus, advisors, you know, their income is dependent upon people sticking with them and yep. carrying on paying the subscription. So they've got to make it more complicated. They've got to give you something <laughs> new to learn on that basis. You yeah. can't just master it, otherwise it's over. And I believe that the job of the consultant is to make the complex simple. It's the reverse of that. So I just simply said, look, pricing is a doddle. You've only got to ever have three prices at all. And how you calculate them is completely up to you. And what I meant was, is that in any given client relationship, it could be a new potential client that has come via marketing. It could be a referral opportunity. It could be an existing client. The nature of it is irrelevant. The the circumstance is always the same. There are three prices, and these are A, the ideal price, B, the walk away price and see the cost price. And this is how they live together. So just as you said, Steve, earlier on, that timesheets are increasingly employed as a measure of efficiency, not yep. a measure of price. We, the, the one victory that an accounting firm can make quickly is divorcing the timesheet from the, from the deciding of the price. Mm-hmm. By all means, measure internal efficiency with it, by all means, but don't let it determine how much you actually charge because you are usually underpricing on that basis. So what we do is we say, right, okay, a client has come to us and the engagement that we've decided that they are interested in has got five factors in. And when we look at our client base, we already do this for three other clients and the median price there is 10 grand. Okay, that's for example. Yep. So there's our, there's our anchor right there. We can prove that we can get 10 grand for this already. We've got it three different times. You know, one's 12, one's eight and one's 10. So on that basis, 10 grand is not unreasonable. We can demonstrate people already paying that much money for that level of service. We can prove it. So we no longer have to worry about it to justify it. It's pre-justified. So that might be our ideal price. But really, the ideal price has no barriers. Think of a number. Whatever you believe you can justify, yeah. the, market, the market will stand whatever can be justified. So, so the ideal price is set up. That's number one. Okay. Now... In order to check that the ideal price meets the minimum level of gross profitability for the firm, we need the cost price. Yeah. We need to know what it will cost to deliver this work, to measure what we're claiming is ideal versus cost. Have we got our profitability percentage in between those two ranges there? Yeah. 
Okay, so let's say we're 70% gross margin. Is it 70% gross margin? Is it higher? Great, if it's 68, we've got the wrong figure. It's not ideal at all, we need to go higher than this until we get it to a 70% minimum, whatever yours happens to be in your firm. So that's what the cost price is for. Not using it to, to decide what the price is, but as a sense check that, we're, yes. that this is profitable enough for us to go ahead and we're not gonna sell ourselves short. So the second price you need is the cost price. The first is the ideal, the second is the cost. The third one's the critical one, which is the walkaway price. And this is the one that firms struggle with. The walkaway price is, as the name suggests, the price for which the practice is not prepared to do it less than. It doesn't need to justify why it's not prepared to do it for less than this, mm -hmm. simply that it's not. That might be a profitability issue, that might be a resource issue, it doesn't matter, it's none of the client's business. If you are, let's say, an ideal price of 10, the walkaway price has got to be as close to that 10 as possible, because we know that accountants crumble in negotiations. Yep. And we know that the more that the client takes that initial number and finds that they can push it down further and further and further, the more they push it down, the more the accountant is looking like a con artist yeah. for having inflated the price artificially already because they're prepared to come down much, much further. So this walkaway price has got to be as tight to the, uh, to the ideal price as possible and the practice has got to have the resolve to actually say, I'm sorry, below 9,000, we're out, it's not worth us doing. Now, practices have a hard time because they just want to grab anything that's there. So they've got to, if they're going to become more profitable, they're, ever, they're going to have to hold a high line and say, below nine, I'm sorry, Steve, it's nothing personal. We simply can't resource it for that. Yes. Simple as that. Now, that's the first part of the walkaway price. The second part of the walkaway price is that it shouldn't be necessary at all to have the 10 is what we want. We want 10 for this job, not nine, we want 10. So if we have to come down from 10 for any reason whatsoever, the golden rule of this holy trinity, Steve, is that we do not come down from 10 to 9 or 9.5 or whatever without getting something of equal or greater value in exchange. Yeah. So for example, the client says to the accountant, okay, um, I see your justification for 10. That's too big a leap from what we're currently paying. What can you do for me? Now you know you've got a thousand pounds worth of space here. Yeah. Okay. You can go anywhere. Nine seven fifty, nine five hundred, whatever you want. Okay. It's up to you where you go. But wherever you go to, you have to say right. Okay. Well, let's take a look at this. I don't know if I can. But what do you need to see? So we bat the ball straight back to the client. Oh, I don't know. I don't know what this is. Right. So is it still a budget buster, for example, at nine? You know, well, it's tight at nine. I said, well, nine's the very lowest I can do. I would only ever come down to nine, Steve, if you would be prepared to. Yes. Now at that time, the practice, can, the practice can say they want referrals, they want marketing collateral, testimonials, or clients' case studies, or whatever, or some sort of video thing, or, or whatever collateral they value as being worth a thousand pounds or more. If the discount is 500 pounds, worth 500 pounds or more. And you don't come down from the ideal price until you've got something from the client that's of more value to you. So example, if we've got three referrals from it and your average referral comes in at five, you're giving away a thousand pounds, you're gaining 5,000 pounds in exchange, no brainer to do that deal, yeah. that's straightforward. So those are the, that's the whole eternity of pricing. Your ideal price, what you really want for it, no one has to tell you, no one has to justify, you don't have to justify to anybody what that is, you don't have to explain to everyone why it's that number, yeah. that's the number you want, that's your prerogative. 
the cost price to make sure the profitability is where it needs to be as a minimum, and the walk away price, which is your negotiation stance, only in last resort scenarios, and only where you get something of greater value in exchange for it. And it feels, to kind of bring this all, all around to, to close, that that value exchange and the piece we've been doing there, that also helps to negate the, the apologetic nature. Yes, I'm, I'm bringing you a press on. I appreciate that times are hard and so on and so forth. Obviously, with the whole thing that the, the cost of living is going up at the moment, there's a, definitely a discussion to be had there. But if it's not a, a monetary gain, but it's actually, like you said, your term, a value exchange, which you know is almost like an investment, isn't it, in future it for, uh, uh, in that client? who's then going to return something, whether that be a referral or something else later on, you can feel comfortable in, one, you've not been apologetic, two, that client feels they're getting a deal, but actually you're winning out of this at the end of it because not only are you getting the the, the walkaway price that you knew you would get, but also you're getting something in exchange. And so making sure you can have that kind of confident conversation with them, I think is really important. So one of the things I ask all the guests that, that are on this podcast is, but the topic that we're on, all around the kind of the, the, the knowing your worth and getting the price you were valued at, what would be your one piece of advice that you would give to our listeners today that they could start, kind of take away this afternoon and go, right, I'm going to go and do what Martin said. What's that one thing? I would like them to have a realisation. The realisation is that they have been the without whom of clients throughout their careers. You know when someone gets an award and an award ceremony and they go up and they thank somebody in their lives to say, without whom this wouldn't have been possible. Yeah. Now the accountant is the without whom for many businesses and they may not know it, the client may not feed that back to them, but that's who they are. I would like the accountant listening to this to understand that they qualified in a noble profession. I say noble because there is only, out of the professions, you know, you look at me perhaps architects, engineers, bankers, lawyers, accountants, etc. There's only the accountant that has the ability to keep the wolves from the door yep. and accelerate a business to where it wants to be, its eventual successful exit ultimately. Only accountants can do that with their skill set, with their technical abilities. They have a noble profession and their role is not in my mind to create to record history. For a client, that's what the law needs. Yes. Their role is to create the futures for this for those business owners. And by doing so, they by consequence create a profitable future for themselves, decreasing labor intensity, increasing value of work to client, increasing satisfaction from the career in the first place. So if there's one thing that I would ask listeners to do to know their worth, it is to understand that the position they're in and the skill set they have make them the most important tool in an entrepreneur's toolkit. Brilliant and insightful as ever, Martin. And thank you for taking the time to go through this. That kind of self-realization point at the end, I think a lot of people will take away and go think about that themselves now and start to listen back and look at some of maybe the scripts that we've given them around the, the conversations they can have. But if, like you said, that one inkling could be go and understand ultimately this noble profession you work in and how you can make a difference that's going to change their lives and their clients lives so thank you very much for your time today hopefully you've got something out of this please come back and listen again but until next time thank you very much